0: I, like you, heard of the eruptions of Mount St. Helens. We read in newspapers and magazines, heard on radio and saw on television descriptions of this great phenomenon. All of my perception of what had gone on was secondhand. Three weeks ago, however, I was in Longview, Washington, which, figuratively speaking, is at the foot of Mount St. Helens. Fifty miles, as the river runs from this volcano, I saw huge dredges and drag lines pulling material from the river channel and depositing it covering acres of ground piled higher than the average man is tall. I saw. I partially understood the power unleashed by that great guttural manifestation of discomfort at Mount St. Helens. It has been estimated that one and one half cubic miles of material spewed forth from the volcano. I should like to paint another picture of power that transcends Mount St. Helens and Vesuvius and all the earthquakes and tornadoes and other like disruptions of our physical tranquility. May I pose a question or two first? Perhaps you have wondered what your Mormon friend believes. May we now go to the mountain of Mormonism and see and perhaps understand why your friend believes as he does. Because the power that comes from this mountain will affect your life, yes, your eternal life. May we earnestly pray together that by your seeing and feeling, hopefully there will come understanding. There are seven events of great eternal consequences that your Mormon friend would like to share with you. Event number one. This magnificent manifestation of power began on a beautiful spring morning in the year 1820. An earnest seeker after truth went to a grove of trees made sacred by this event and knelt in humble supplication to his Heavenly Father, the creator of mountains and valleys and oceans and all that we see by day in the celestial lights of the stars and planets that we observe by night. The heavens were opened, and this great and noble spirit, Joseph Smith, entered into direct communication. Let your eyes see and your hearts feel, and let there be at least partial understanding As we listen to the word picture of this event, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description standing above me in the air. One of them spoke unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. All uncertainty fled away. Joseph Smith had personal knowledge of the reality of these divine beings. The Father and the Son, the creators of the universe, appeared to Joseph Smith. Event number two. Three years have passed since this first great vision—it is now 1823. Another light appeared, and an angel instructed the boy prophet, May we again listen in. While I was thus in the act of calling upon God, I discovered a light appearing in my room which continued to increase until the room was lighter than at noonday, when immediately a personage appeared at my bedside, standing in the air, for his feet did not touch the floor. He called me by name and said unto me that he was a messenger sent from the presence of God to me, that his name was Moroni, that God had a work for me to do. He said there was a book deposited, written upon golden plates, giving an account of the former inhabitants of this continent and the source of whence they sprang. He also said that the fullness of the everlasting gospel was contained in it, as delivered by the Savior to these ancient inhabitants. Event number three. Four more years pass. Another description. At length the time arrived for obtaining the plates. On the 22nd day of September, 1827, The same heavenly messenger delivered them to me with this charge that I should be responsible for them. Golden plates were now delivered containing a precious message to be whispered from the dust through the divine intervention of the powers of translation. Let's catch the spirit and spell of the translation process as described by Oliver Cowdery. Oh, these were days never to be forgotten— to sit under the sound of a voice dictated by the inspiration of heaven, awakened the utmost gratitude of my bosom. Day after day I continued uninterrupted to write from his mouth as he translated the history or record called the Book of Mormon. Event number four. Two additional years passed, and now another visitation bringing power from on high the ironic priesthood which holds special keys, restored to the earth. It's described in these words. We still continued the work of translation. When in the ensuing month, May 1829, we on a certain day went into the woods to pray and inquire the Lord respecting baptism for the remission of sins, that we found mentioned in the translation of the plates while we were thus employed. Praying and calling upon the Lord... Mm-hmm a messenger from heaven descended in a cloud of light, and having laid his hands upon us, he ordained us, saying, Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah I confer the priesthood of Aaron, which holds the keys of the ministering of angels and the gospel of repentance and of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. The messenger who visited us on this occasion conferred the priesthood on us. Said that his name was John, the same that is called John the Baptist in the New Testament, and that he acted under the direction of Peter, James, and John, who hold the keys of the priesthood of Melchizedek, which priesthood he said would in due time be conferred upon us. Peter, James, and John did come and ordained him to the Melchizedek priesthood, which holds the power to act in the name of deity. An acquaintance of Joseph Smith made this interesting observation. If you were to ask Joseph what sort of a looking man Adam was, he would tell you at once. He would tell you his size, his appearance, and all about him. You might have asked him what sort of men Peter, James, and John were, and he could have told you. You see, my non-Mormon friend, he knew them because he had a personal relationship with them. Event number five. In the year 1836, we now share a personal manifestation of the Savior to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery in these beautiful words. The veil was taken from our minds, and the eyes of our understanding were opened. We saw the Lord standing upon the breastwork of the pulpit before us, and under his feet was a paywork of pure gold in color like amber. His eyes were as a flame of fire, the hair of his head was white like the pure snow, his countenance shone above the brightness of the sun. And his voice was the sound of the rushing of great waters, even the voice of Jehovah, saying, I am the first and the last. I am he who liveth. I am he who was slain. I am your advocate with the Father. Let me share with you an eyewitness account of some of these events. And I quote, I shall not attempt to paint to you the feelings of this heart, nor the majestic beauty and glory which surrounded us on this occasion. But you will believe me when I say that earth nor men with the eloquence of time cannot begin to clothe language in as interesting and sublime a manner as this holy personage is. No, nor has this earth the power to give the joy, to bestow the peace or comprehend the wisdom which was contained in each sentence as it was delivered by the power of the Holy Spirit the assurance that we were in the presence of an angel, the certainty that we heard the voice of Jesus, and the truth unsullied as it flowed from a pure personality dictated by the will of God, is to me past description. Event number six. Biblical prophets over the ages have foretold the gathering of Israel. Let's examine a visitation of Moses to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery and his commitment to the keys of gathering. The heavens were again opened unto us, and Moses appeared before us and committed unto us the keys of the gathering of Israel from the four parts of the earth and the leading of the ten tribes from the land of the north. Event number seven. Now came Elijah, in direct fulfillment of Malachi's prediction. Let's listen to this heaven-sent truth. Another great and glorious vision burst upon us. For Elijah the prophet, who was taken to heaven without tasting death, stood before us and said, Behold, the time has fully come which was spoken of by the mouth of Malachi, testifying that he, Elijah, would be sent before the great and dreadful day of the Lord come to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. The power of Elijah is the sealing power of the priesthood by which things bound or loosed on earth are bound or loosed in heaven. Thus the keys of this power are once again operative on the earth and are used in performing the ordinances of the gospel for the living and the dead. Great power has been manifest from mountains. Physical power came from Mount St. Helens, but will soon be subdued and rest peacefully for an indeterminate number of years. The spiritual power that came from Sinai in olden times And the restorative powers of all ages have come down from heaven in our day that will not be subdued, but will affect us through all the eternities. The Lord has said, Every eye shall see and every ear shall hear, whether it be by mine own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. I raise my voice in solemn testimony that these earth and heaven-encompassing truths actually occurred, that the Savior literally lives, and that His power is vested in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. May the Lord bless you my friend, that you will see and hear and understand. Why not begin that trek today? I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.
1: Charles Dickens once wrote, It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of reason. It was the age of foolishness. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. This description of a period of time in his day reminds us of some of the conditions of our day. We live in a great age of miracles and wonders. We have a higher standard of living and more education than any generation of the past. We enjoy the greatest comforts and the finest luxuries. We have more goods and better services than any other people have ever had. Our nation is the most prosperous and powerful ever known. Indeed, this is the best of times. But this is also the worst of times. We are also confronted by bigger problems, by greater dangers than man has ever faced before. Delinquencies, crime, destructive wars, immorality, and other sins are scoring new highs. Serious disturbances are taking place in nature. We probably constitute the worst wicked age The most important responsibility that the Lord has ever laid is that of making the best and most of our lives. If we make the worst of times the best of times, we will be going directly towards heaven. But if we make the best of times the worst of times, we will be going backwards. We're all quite aware of the Lord's miracles, teachings, and doctrines. We know of his example yet sometimes we are so far away. We live in the very best of times, yet we may be so far away from his teachings and doctrines. The scriptures clearly compares our day with the days of Noah, when the people of his time brought destruction upon themselves. It must be clear to each of us that the problems then and now is our poor relationship with the Lord, From the very beginning, the Lord has tried to get man to follow his divine counsel, aimed at peace, prosperity, and happiness for all of us. Unfortunately, man's responses to his efforts have almost always been negative, and we continue to follow our own devices and wisdom in leading each other astray. Jeremiah wrote, Thus saith the Lord, Curse be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. Both our past and our present proves that of ourselves, we lack the ability to solve our own problems. More than anything else, and more than ever before, we need direction from the Lord. Jesus Christ diagnosed our problems when he said, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoureth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Again he said, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. His divine instructions gave us all the answers to any problem that might confront us. But his doctrines and teachings did not go very well with the people in his time, nor in our time. They fell on deaf ears. The people in his time and we who live in this, the last dispensation of the fullness of times, chose to follow the the false doctrines of men. This program for substituting the doctrines of men for those taught by the Lord has been very harmful and very extensive. Today in America, it is against the law to talk about God in the schools of some states. In these schools, one must not read the Bible, one must not sing Christmas carols, and prayer is prohibited because someone's sensibility might be offended. Atheism may be taught in the schools, but not the word of God. The sin and evil that the Lord came to free us from are in many places today running unchecked throughout our nation and the rest of the world. Crime is at an all-time high, Sin it is at an all-time high and immorality among the youth and the adults is at an all-time high. Jesus came as our example. He lived a sinless life and furnished us with a working model of righteousness. His simple message was, follow me. He asked us to follow him in his teachings, to follow him in his righteousness, and to follow him in his love for others. Unfortunately and sadly, many have not followed him rather they have followed those who could find no room for his teachings his miracles or his doctrines many have made no room for him because their lives are loaded down with sin and pleasures others have made room for their physical comforts they have made room to expand their educational opportunities but they have crowded him out some have made room to work more hours to accumulate material possessions. Still others have made room to multiply their luxury and increase their leisure time, and they have made room for more sports and entertainment, but they have made no room for him. They have made room for many violations of the Sabbath day, but they have made no room for the Savior of the world, our Redeemer and Savior. Today, the Lord is pleading with us through the spoken word, through the scriptures, through the Spirit, through his prophets, through the witness of faithful parents, friends, and teachers. But we still have no room for him. We have no room for his teachings and doctrines because most of us are looking for a religion of convenience, one that takes no time, costs no money, and requires no effort, and one that will fit our lives without any changes. It is no wonder the Lord said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, But the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. As we watch our government hopelessly grapple with the mighty problems of the day, perhaps we should take a look at the way the Lord would handle the problems of our day. The world in general works on the effects and results of the problems, while the Lord zeroed in on the roots and the causes. The Lord advocated preventive measures, while man attacks the problems after they have arisen man's answer to crime is better law enforcement bigger and better locks on doors bigger and better prisons bigger bigger and better rehabilitation and more bigger and better arms and weapons but the lord's answer is to love your neighbor as yourself and do good to others as you would have them do to you man's answer to poverty is public welfare through food stamps loans guaranteed income publicly financed housing and other things. The Lord's answer is to teach self-reliance, to help people help themselves. Man's answer to the problems of immorality are birth control pills, homes for unwed mothers, venereal disease clinics, sex education, and divorce counselors. The Lord's answer is to teach the virtues of chastity, love, and purity. The Lord's approach to problems and his approach to resolving them probably would not make headlines, nor the 6 o'clock news, but nevertheless, his approach would solve our nation's problems as well as the world's problems, and it would revolutionize our world. Paul tried to teach the Ephesians how to be good Christians and good people. The lesson is also a good lesson for us. He said, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is not only a great counsel for us, but also a great philosophy to follow. It is a great philosophy of life which all of us need if we are to become bigger to the problems to be solved in our day. Man's attempts to solve his problems by legislation bribery, force, or education have always failed. All of his problems could easily be solved by a return to the true religion of Christ. As members of his true church, we should lead the way in fighting for God and country, for law and order, for health and strength, industry and courage, for truth and righteousness, and for each other. We need to take the time to worship, to meditate, and to develop a more personal, meaningful relationship with the Lord. We need to get acquainted with his teachings. We need to feed our hearts on the things of the Spirit. We need to, more than ever before, be more practical to begin to think today what Jesus thought. We can fill our minds with our Heavenly Father's purpose and our hearts with an understanding of his ways. We can open the door of our soul and make room for the Savior to come in. The door of our hearts can still be opened from within. Our invitation to the Lord to enter our hearts must come from the inside. The inspired counsel from the prophet Job should be ringing in our ears when he said, Acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace. The Lord is still saying to us as he did in his time when he declared, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. My prayer, my brothers and sisters, is that we will make the worst of times the very best of times, by making room for the Redeemer of the world in our personal lives, I testify that He is the living bread which came down from heaven. He is the promised Messiah and the Savior of the human race. He is the eternal judge of the souls of men and the conqueror of death and sin. He is our deliverer. He is our all because He gave all of His for us. He is Jesus the Christ. He lives. He is our salvation from sorrow and sin. He is the Christ, I humbly pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
2: If you're in possession of something that's dearer to you than life itself, and you knew that by giving it away, it could enrich the lives of your fellow men without making your life any poorer, you'd want to do it, wouldn't you? My testimony of the divinity of this church is that treasure dearer to me than life itself, and I have given it away to many, many people whose lives have been enriched by virtue all the same. I have had the privilege of bearing testimony in 98 general conferences of the church from this pulpit. And I have written books that are being used almost all over the world, containing my testimonies. And that testimony I obtained in my youth through the Holy Ghost that I received by laying on of hands by those who had authority to convey it upon me. And it made such an impression upon me as a boy It has been a guiding star to me all my life. And I could hardly wait until I was old enough to go on a mission. When I went on my first mission back in 1905, my my, uh, cousin and I traveled together to Liverpool, and he was sent up into Norway, and I was sent into Holland. And after we'd been in the mission field a few months, I received a letter from him calling me by name, and he said, I met a man the other day who knows more about religion than I ever dreamed of. And I told him if he had something better than I had, I would join his church. I wrote him back, calling him by name. I said, you told him just the right thing. If he has something better than you have, you ought to join his church. And then I quoted some of the experiences that Brother Finds related to us this morning. I said, if he has something better than a personal visitation of God the Father and his son Jesus Christ in a pillar of light after centuries of darkness, to open the dispensation of the fullness of times, uh, I said, and to reveal the true personality of the Godhead, that they are glorified personages. I said, does he have something better than the coming of Moroni with the plates from which the Book of Mormon was translated? Does he have something better than the coming of John the Baptist With the Aaronic priesthood, the power and authority to to baptize by immersion for the remission of sins, does he have something better than the coming of Peter, James, and John, apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, With the holy Melchizedek priesthood, the holy apostleship, the authority to organize the church and kingdom of God for the last time to prepare the way, for the coming of the Son of Man, and to convey the the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands. Does he have something better than the coming of Moses with the keys of latter-day gathering of Israel that has brought us here into these valleys of the mountains? Did he have something better than the coming of Elijah, of whose coming Malachi bore testimony that if it were not for his coming, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, the whole earth would be utterly wasted at his coming. Think of the consequences. Now I said, if he has something better than that, you join his church. I can't think of anything that we as parents and as leaders in Israel can plant into the hearts of our youth that will help them to avoid the evils and pitfalls and temptations of this world and the false philosophies of men and enable them to live in the world and yet not be a part of the world like having planted in their hearts through the power of the Holy Ghost a testimony of the truth of this restored gospel. If um, I like the words of the Apostle Peter, he said we have a more sure word of prophecy and we do well that we cleave unto it as unto a light shining in a dark place until the day star arise in our hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in olden time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved upon by the power. Of the Holy Ghost. That's what brings testimony. And then Peter said to those. Who had put put to death the Christ. Following the. um, Where they received the Holy Ghost. Spit in my mind a minute. He said. He said. uh, Repent ye and be converted. That your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send unto you Jesus Christ, who before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the time of the restitution of all things, spoken with the mouths of all the holy prophets since the world began. No man can believe that Peter was a prophet of the living God, and look for that truth that is necessary to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord, except it be a restitution of all things spoken by the mouths of all the holy prophets since the world began. And a restitution is not a reformation. All the churches of the world today have attempted to correct the mistakes of history until there are hundreds of them because they couldn't agree. And if they had the truth, they'd all be alike. And so we have to have a restitution. That means that those holy prophets had to come back to this earth. And that's what you've been told here in this conference. And if they came back to this earth, they had to come to somebody. And that somebody could be none other than a prophet of God. Like Amos said, for surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servant, the prophets. We bear testimony of this restitution of all things. The coming of these holy prophets has been pointed out here during this conference today. I like the prophecies of the scriptures. Jesus said as he walked along the way, toward Emmaus with two of his disciples, following his resurrection, and he heard what they had to say. He knew that they didn't understand and comprehend what the prophets had said, and he said, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, and commencing with Moses and the prophets, he showed them how that in all things the prophets had testified of him. I love the prophecies of Isaiah. Seems to me that he almost lived more in our day than when when he was actually upon the earth. He saw so much of what would transpire in our day. He saw us settled here in these valleys of the mountains. He saw this desert where we were a thousand miles from transportation and supplies made to blossom as a rose. He saw the rivers flow in the desert where we built these great irrigation canals. He saw the water flow down from the high places where we rivers or- <clears throat> reservoired in these mountain fastnesses for summer's use. He saw the daughters of Zion come up and sing in the heights of Zion. And where do you find anything in the world to fulfill that? like the singing of the tabernacle choir for over 50 years without a break. He saw the mountain of the Lord's house established in the top of the mountains in the latter days, when all nations would flow unto it, and they would say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he might teach us of his ways, and he might walk, and we might walk in his paths. Now in the scriptures, there are many, many prophecies of the regathering of the Jews back to Jerusalem. But this prophecy said, and all nations would say unto thee, let us walk and come up to the mountain of the Lord's house. Jeremiah saw the day when it should no longer be said, as sure as God lives, who led Israel up out of Egypt out of bondage and captivity. But as sure as God hath gathered Israel from the four quarters of the earth, whithersoever they have been scattered, he said that he would send for many fishers and many hunters, and they would fish them and hunt them from the hills and the mountains and the holes in the rocks. That's this 31,000 Mormon missionaries scattered all over the world, gathering in the seed of Israel and bringing them to Zion. He saw <clears throat> he saw how they'd be gathered. One of the city and two of a family. And he would bring them. The Lord would bring them to Zion. And he would give them pastors after his own heart. Who should feed them with knowledge and with understanding. Could anybody sit through sessions of the conference like we've had prior to this one? And listen to these prophets of the living God. And not realize that Jeremiah saw the day when they should come here. uh, Gathered one of a city and two of a family. And and that he would give them pastors after his own heart. I love the prophecies of Isaiah. I like the 29th chapter where he said that um, because this people draw near me with their mouths and with their lips to honor me, but their hearts are far removed from me, and they teach for doctrine the precepts of men. Therefore I, the Lord, will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. There aren't any wise men in this world today, nor prudent men, and understand all of the prophecies like we Latter-day Saints do through the restoration of this gospel and some of the prophecies that I have already referred to and have been referred to in this conference. Then Isaiah, in that very same 29th chapter, starts out like this. He said, Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. That was Jerusalem. That's where David dwelt. Add ye year to year, meaning coming generations. Let them kill sacrifice, and it shall be camped about, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. In other words, Isaiah didn't only see the destruction of the great city of Jerusalem, but he saw the destruction of another great center here in America, 1,100 years after he made that prophecy just like when he described the downfall of babylon a hundred and seventy years before it was destroyed when he said it should never be rebuilt now he said in that chapter that the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid there are so many things that have transpired in this day that um uh, that the wise men of this world can understand, and I haven't time here today to illuminate any more or enumerate any more to you. But my heart is full of gratitude to my heavenly Father, and full of, grat- of testimony by the Holy Spirit of the divinity of this work, and I bear that testimony to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
3: I'd just like to say thank you to the choir for that beautiful song of worship, which I hope will serve as something of a frame into which I can place my remarks. These past six months have been a wonderful season for us as a Church. Last spring we ushered in the 150th anniversary of the organization. On April 6th, when we were similarly convened in General Conference, we spanned most of the continent and reached across a century and a half of history when we spoke from the humble birthplace of the Church to the vast congregation assembled in this tabernacle. Since then, with music, with dancing, with drama, we have portrayed the epic story of the building of Zion in the latter days. We have refreshed the remembrance of our past and paid reverent tribute to those who gave so much to make possible that which we enjoy today. There has been stirred within us a spirit of thanksgiving to Almighty God for the wondrous manner in which He has woven the tapestry of His divine purpose. We have been reminded that we are an important part of the fulfillment of a great prophecy. All of this has been done in the spirit of jubilee, but there is much yet to be done. In ancient Israel, each fiftieth year was observed as a jubilee year with remembrance and celebration. But there was also a mandate urging generous forgiveness and a lifting of the hand of oppression. Now in 1980, as we draw the curtain on 150 years of our history, it becomes us as a grateful people to reach out with a spirit of forgiveness and an attitude of love and compassion toward those whom we have felt may have wronged us. We have need of this. The whole world has need of it. It is of the very essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He taught it. He exemplified it as none other has exemplified it. In the time of his agony on the cross of Calvary, with vile and hateful accusers before him, they who had brought him to this terrible crucifixion, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. None of us is called on to forgive so generously but each of us is under a divinely given obligation to reach out with pardon and mercy. The Lord has declared in words of revelation, My disciples in days of old sought occasion against one another and forgave not one another in their hearts. And for this evil they were afflicted and sorely chastened. Wherefore I say unto you that ye ought to forgive one another, for he that forgiveth not his brother his trespasses standeth condemned before the Lord, for there remaineth in him the greater sin. I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive, but of you it is required to forgive all men. And ye ought to say in your hearts, Let God judge between me and thee and reward thee according to thy deeds. How much we have application of this God-given principle and its companion principle of repentance of which President Romney has so persuasively spoken. We see the need for it in the homes of the people, where tiny molehills of misunderstanding, are fanned into mountains of argument. We see it among neighbors where insignificant differences lead to undying bitterness. We see it in business associates who quarrel and refuse to compromise and forgive, when in most instances, if there were a willingness to sit down and quietly speak one to another, the matter could be resolved to the blessing of all. Rather, they spend their days nurturing grudges and planning retribution. Guy de Maupassant, the French writer, tells the story of a peasant named Hachakoma, who at harvest time came on market day to the village. While walking through the public square, his eye caught sight of a piece of string lying on the cobblestones. He picked it up and put it in his pocket. His actions were observed by the village harness maker with whom he had previously had a dispute. Later in the day, the loss of a purse was reported. Auchacoma was arrested on the accusation of the harness maker. He was taken before the mayor to whom he protested his innocence, showing the piece of string he had picked up. But he was not believed and was laughed at. The next day the purse was found, and Hachikomo was all absolved of any wrongdoing. But resentful of the indignity he had suffered because of a false accusation, he became embittered and would not let the matter die. Unwilling to forget, he thought and talked of little else. He neglected his farm. Everywhere he went, everyone he met had to be told of the injustice. By day and by night, he brooded over it. Obsessed with his grievance, he became desperately ill and died. In the delirium of his death struggles, he repeatedly murmured, a piece of string, a piece of string. With variations of characters and circumstances, that story could be repeated many times over in our own day. How difficult it is for any of us to forgive those who have injured us. We are all prone to brood on the evil done us. That brooding becomes as a gnawing and destructive canker. Is there a virtue more in need of application in our time than the virtue of forgiving and forgetting? There are those who would look upon this as a sign of weakness, is it? I submit that it takes neither strength nor intelligence to brood in anger over wrongs suffered, to go through life with a spirit of vindictiveness, to dissipate one's abilities in planning retribution. There is no peace in the nursing of a grudge. There is no happiness in living of the day when you can get even. Paul speaks of the mean and beggarly elements of our lives. Is there anything more mean or beggarly than the disposition to wear out one's life in an unending round of bitter thoughts and scheming gestures toward those who may have affronted us? Joseph F. Smith presided over the Church at a time of great bitterness toward our people. He was the target of vile accusations of a veritable drumbeat of criticism by editorial writers, even in this community. He was lampooned, cartooned, ridiculed. Listen to his response of those who made sport of demeaning him. Let them alone. Let them go. Give them the liberty of speech they want. Let them tell their own story and write their own doom. And then, with an outreaching spirit of forgiving and forgetting, He went ahead with the great and positive work of leading the Church forward to new growth and remarkable accomplishments. At the time of his death, those who had ridiculed him, many of them, wrote great tributes of praise concerning him. Not long ago I listened at length to a couple who sat across the desk from me. There was bitterness between them. I know that at one time their love was deep and true. But each had developed a habit of speaking of the faults of the other, unwilling to forgive the kind of mistakes we all make and unwilling to forget them and live above them with forbearance. They had carped at one another until the love they once knew had been smothered. It had turned to ashes with the decree of a so-called no-fault divorce, now there is only loneliness and recrimination. I am satisfied that had there been even a small measure of repentance and forgiveness, they would still be together enjoying the companionship that had so richly blessed their earlier years. If there be any within the sound of my voice, who nurture in their hearts the poisonous brew of enmity toward another, I plead with you to ask the Lord for strength to forgive. This expression of desire will be of the very substance of your repentance. It may not be easy, and it may not come quickly, but if you will seek it with sincerity and cultivate it, it will come. And even though he whom you have forgiven continues to pursue and threaten you, you will know you have done what you could to effect reconciliation. There will come into your heart a peace otherwise unattainable. That peace will be the peace of him who said, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you, but if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I know of no more beautiful story in all literature than that found in the 15th chapter of Luke. It is the story of a repentant son and a forgiving father. It is the story of the son who wasted his inheritance in riotous living, rejecting his father's counsel, spurning those who loved him. When he had spent all, he was hungry and friendless. And when he came to himself, he turned back to his father, who, on seeing him afar off, ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. I ask you to read that story. Every parent ought to read it again and again. It is large enough to encompass every household and enough larger than that to encompass all mankind. For are we not all prodigal sons and daughters who need to repent and partake of the forgiving mercy of our Heavenly Father and then follow his example? Learn of me and listen to my words. Walk in the meekness of my spirit, and you shall have peace in me. This is the commandment and this is the promise of him who in his great exemplary prayer pleaded, Father, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. My brothers and sisters, as we conclude this great season of Jubilee, let us bind up the wound. That have been caused by cutting words, by stubbornly cultivated by grievances, by scheming plans to get even with those who may have wronged us. To err is human. To forgive is divine. There is no peace in harboring old grudges. There is no peace in reflecting on the pain of old wounds. There is peace only in repentance and forgiveness. This is the sweet peace of the Christ who said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Of this I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen." Amen.
4: The other day I enjoyed listening to two of my friends discuss their favorite football team. They were in agreement that possibly the greatest limiting factor in the team's achieving high national ranking was its game schedules. They felt for the for the team for its own good should be playing against stronger competition. In football or in life the adversary The ones with whom we compete, oppose, or resist—our opponents, our foes, our enemies, or our problems—are often the determining factors in our ultimate strength and achievement. Adversity will surface in some form in every life. How we prepare for it, how we meet it, makes the difference. We can be broken by adversity, or we can become stronger. The final result is up to the individual. Henry Fielding said, Adversity is a trial of principle. Without it, a man hardly knows whether he is honest or not. Realizing that adversity can include suffering, destitution, affliction, calamity, or disaster, how can we best use it as an opportunity for personal growth? and development. For one answer, let me share with you an incident in the life of a a special friend, which he tells in his own words at my request. I find his experience a powerful sermon. It was the third Saturday in January a few years ago. I was excited to attend a seminar that morning. It was an agricultural seminar at the Brigham Young University where I had been attending school. I had been home from my Honolulu-Hawaii mission six months and was going through all the adjustments of a return missionary. The challenge of family, girls, school, and the fact that there were 25,000 other students who were bright, aggressive, some with plenty of money, others like myself who were pinching every nickel, didn't make things easier. I landed a job running a hydraulic press earlier that week in a machine shop. We made seals for hydraulic equipment. Following the seminar that morning, I went to work. Kimball, my roommate and former missionary companion who had gone to work earlier that morning, instructed me in how to make a new seal. After approximately 20 minutes, one of the smallest steel seals stuck on the face of the plate. I struggled to get it off with my left hand. As I turned back to give it my full attention and used my right hand, the machine closed on my left hand, causing a horrible noise as it crushed my hand just below the wrist. After what seemed an eternity, the huge press finally opened. My thir- first thought when looking, my hand was, what a mess. Then the, inner, then the inner voice, which I had come to know, love, and appreciate, whispered, Jerry, you won't have your hand. Four hours of surgery followed. The first thing I remember hearing was the surgeon's voice in the recovery room. Jerry, he said, can you hear me? Yes, I said. We had to take off your hand. The following four days were filled with tears, aches, friends, cards, letters, and family. Concerned people made it so much easier for me, especially Kimball. He let my parents and others close to me know and helped in every way he could. Never did I have to ask for one thing. It was already done. By his example and support, he gave me the courage to face this new challenge. The days in the hospital were filled with painful, sleepless hours and nights. Those nights gave me an opportunity to think about the Savior and Joseph Smith as I had never done before. I reviewed the Prophet Joseph's life from everything I had learned. He faced physical, emotional, and a spiritual trial upon trial—how I marveled at his well-won victories! At this difficult time, I promised the Lord I would try to accept all of my challenges as the prophet Joseph had accepted his. Of course, during the first night, there were thoughts of why me? Was it something in my past? What have I done to deserve this? Then I thought, no more rodeo, football, or skiing. And I wondered what type of a woman would want a one handed husband. I hadn't developed a good self-image or a great deal of self-esteem, so these thoughts magnified my concerns. Mom came to school and drove me home for the weekend. One thing she said that made me again appreciate her greatness was, "'Jerry, if I could only give you my left hand and make it work, I would.'" Sunday was fast Sunday. As I stood... Favoring my bandaged-shortened arm, I thanked everyone for their thoughts, prayers, and cards. I realized, as never before, that good friends and faithful family members make challenges less difficult. After the testimony meeting, an admired friend gave me a special blessing. So many questions were answered during his blessing. He told me this accident was not punishment for anything I had done but rather an opportunity to help me become a better person and to amplify those particular traits which needed to be developed. He shared the thought that this challenge could make me more understanding of people, problems, and life. As I look back now, each point of his blessing and encouragement has helped me in a very fulfilling way. One of my greatest fears was the constant thought of how people would accept me. Would they be afraid of me, question my ability, or write me off before I could prove myself? Would girls turn down dates because I was different? Would it make them feel uncomfortable to be seen with me? I had dated several girls since my mission, but had only dated Julie a couple of times. When I awoke in the morning... Following the operation in the hospital, she was there with other friends. I asked everyone else to leave the room, and then I proceeded to give her what I thought was a perfect speech. I told her they had to take my hand off. If she felt embarrassed or ashamed to be with me or to be seen with me on future dates, she need not feel obligated to continue in any future courtship. At the moment, I could see fire in her eyes. She let me know in no uncertain terms that she was not there out of pity but only because she cared for me. She indicated she would help me but never feel sorry for me. Six months later, we were married in the Salt Lake Temple. There were many job interviews, prejudices, and rejections of employment. But with continued encouragement, the Lord blessed us in innumerable ways. When our first little girl, Bracken, arrived, it left us short of money to go to school. So after a major decision, we went into business, which proved to be another learning experience. After a couple of years with many reverses, I was able to find a career in personal management, which fulfilled not only my goals but answered my prayers. Today, as I look back, I see the challenge of adversity as something upon which to build. Of course, I cannot say the experience was pleasant. It was horrible. However, I hope I have used this adversity in a positive way. When I see others in trouble, in pain, when real adversity is knocking, I have an opportunity not only to feel something of what they feel, but perhaps I can help them because they can see that I have challenges of my own. Following a recent discussion of the subject of adversity, a young man who was greatly concerned about the burdens being carried by his wonderful mother asked the question, If God is omnipotent and knows all, why does he put my mother through the agony of continual sufferings when he already knows what the outcome will be? Our response was, Your mother's trials are not tests so the Lord can measure her, they are tests and trials so that your mother can measure herself. It is most important that she knows her strengths in adversity and grows from the experiences. When, with several companions, the Prophet Joseph was a prisoner in Liberty, Missouri, for a number of months, conditions were deplorable. In desperation, Joseph pleaded for understanding and assistance from his Heavenly Father. The message finally came, My son, peace be unto thy soul. Thine adversity and thine affliction shall be but a moment, and then, if thou endure it well, God shall exalt thee on high, and thou shalt triumph over all thy foes." It can be declared accurately and without hesitation that Joseph Smith's noble character and stature were shaped and achieved by constant victories over his afflictions. Jesus, too, developed unique balance mentally, physically, spiritually, and socially, as he labored and served under all types of trying circumstances. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience— By the things he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Difficulties can be a valuable tool in our pursuit of perfection. Adversity need have no necessary connection with failure. Proper self-management and self-discipline in all of our trials bring strength If we are prepared, we can meet life's challenges victoriously. We become his disciples when we continue faithfully under all circumstances, including suffering and tragedy. I have another choice friend who has known very few days in his life which were not filled with pain, discomfort, or disease. He shakes his fists at the forces of darkness and trial. His taxing trials of all of the yesterdays have been properly met and have assisted in making him what he is today. Like Caleb of old, he too can be heard to say, As yet I am strong, now therefore give me this mountain. More mountains, even those high in adversity, can better prepare us for tomorrow if we are but willing to climb. Jesus Christ, the Master, shares his life of trials and victories with us for our motivation and direction. God strengthened his Son. He, too, will support us, his children, if we will turn to him for guidance. What a blessing it is to know that we can be supported against all the fiery darts of the enemy if we are faithful. A worthy daily prayer is one asking for the power to be faithful under all circumstances. Knowing that Satan and his hosts are relentless in their attempts to ridicule, embarrass, belittle, and cause all of us to yield and ultimately fall, what should be our attitude in today's society? There is an important step beyond avoiding contention and strive— and that is to live with dignity. There is something sacred about living with dignity. We need not quarrel or compete with those who promote and encourage controversy. We need not spend our time in retaliation. Those who would deceive, destroy, or belittle reap their own rewards. Their works are neither praiseworthy nor of good report. How disarming it must be to the enemies to see the valiant moving forward with poise and dignity under all challenging circumstances. Scorn and ridicule are two of the greatest forms of adversity we are forced to face in today's world. Doing the will of God on a daily basis leaves no time for contention or confrontation. Those who yield to adversity become weaker. To the valiant, it is a stepping stone to increase power. Members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and God-fearing people worldwide will not pray for freedom from trials. They will not surrender or panic. They will, put them, they will strive to put themselves in condition to meet and master troublesome trials. Usually there are no easy answers to most of our problems. Each individual must think, plan, work, and pray to find the help he needs and the courage he must have to conquer his problem or carry his cross, whatever his lot may be. Winners set achievable goals day by day. Their plans consist of things that can be done, not what can't be done. They remember that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but the power of love and of a sound mind. God seems to have sustaining love for those like Jerry who cope courageously with adversity. In many cases, it seems they have a special relationship with him. Behold, I have refined thee. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction." Individually, we should thank God for the example of those about us who battle and conquer daily challenges that are intense, real, and continuing. There are some persons that in our human eyes seem to have more than their share of trouble, as we measure, but with God's help, they are made special. They will not break. They will not yield. Satan wants us to feel unequal to our worldly tasks. If we turn to God, he will take us by the hand and lead us through our darkest hours. To these truths I bear my testimony and leave my special witness in the name of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Amen.